Good afternoon and welcome to the Serious Security Seminar from Purdue University. Our speaker today is Professor Catherine Siegfried Speller, an assistant professor in the Department of Computer and Information Technology here at Purdue University. Kate. Thank you. All right, so when I was asked to give a talk on cybersecurity, it's really interesting because my background is psychology. And I tend to study more of the micro, come on in, more of the micro um, personality traits and kind of individual characteristics of individuals who commit crimes online. So when I was kind of considering this, I decided that I was going to talk about an incident that happened at my previous institute. So I was a faculty member at the University of Alabama. And I was there for three years. And I just started here at Purdue in June. So let me see if I can fix this. There we go. So this is a talk that I gave at the International Conference on Digital Forensics and Cybercrime in Seoul, Korea about three weeks ago. So this is a full paper that's been published, so I'd be more than happy to share it with you guys, but this is a condensed version of it. The paper is really long because this is a qualitative study. I was collecting emails, yik yak posts, um, Twitter account information, all kinds of stuff. And I'm essentially analyzing it from a psychological and communications perspective. So this talk is about a cyber threat that happened almost um, a little bit over a year ago at Alabama. So I'm going to, when I'm going through this, uh, give you an idea of the location of the cyber threat. So kind of a background about the University of Alabama in case you're not really familiar with the university. Then I'm going to talk about the initial incident, the original threat that was posted, and then talk about sort of the aftermath of that threat, what we saw happen. Look at the social media explosion, because that of course occurred, and also look at the national response. So this became national news as well. And then finally I'm going to say, or try to look at this from a case study perspective. So I have all this information, well, you know, the way the students responded, the way that the administration and law enforcement responded, could we have predicted this? Could we have done it better? And um, I'm going to look at that from psychological and communications perspectives and then kind of give you guys a general what they should have done and maybe what we can do in the future. And during this, it's really informative, as you can probably tell. So please ask questions, raise your hand. And then at the end, I really hope to have a conversation to see how you think students here at um, Purdue would have responded to a type, this type of threat. All right, so in case you're not really familiar where the University of Alabama is, it's right here. It's in Tuscaloosa. So it's, almost, it's kind of similar to Purdue in that we're about an hour from Indianapolis here. So we're about an hour from Birmingham. So Birmingham's where our international airport is. And it's um, actually the largest city in, or in Alabama, even though it's not the capital. So the capital is actually Montgomery. That was something I did not realize when I moved there. But I should also say that I'm Yankee at heart, born here. I knew nothing about the South when I went here. So I actually uh, learned quite a bit of Alabama. It's a traditional college town. And it's actually pretty similar here to, we have West Lafayette and Lafayette and it sits on that river. We actually have a river as well. So that river, the Black Warrior River, separates Northport and Tuscaloosa. So it's really similar as far as the kind of style of the university and how it's set up. We have about 36,000 students. I believe Purdue is around 39,000, somewhere close to there. So again, relatively the similar size. We have um, about 46% of them are from elsewhere in the United States, and 32% of the students are Greek students. This is gonna be a major key point that we're going to talk about throughout this lecture. And you can see uh, the style is quite different, so it's very uh, grandiose. You have these large brick buildings and big white columns. If you know anything about the South, it's kind of has that plantation style to it. But a very large campus. The sorority and Greek system is large as well. 
So we have the largest Greek system in the United States, and the Greek system in, at the University of Alabama is called the machine. Why? Because it runs everything. So people want to get elected, they get elected through the machine. Um, <laughs> you guys are laughing, it's totally true. Law enforcement, everybody calls it the machine, and they know that that's all the politics, everything within the university and outside of the university is ran through this machine. Um, we have 63 Greek organizations, and 33% of the students are considered Greek students. So this is a really large organization here and um, produce not as large. So the initial cyber threat happened on Sunday, September 21st, which is why I said it was a little over a year ago. And we had a threatening post um, occur on an old YouTube video. So if you, I don't know if this made the national news, but you not, may not be familiar with it. About two years prior to this, so a year prior to this post in 2013, there was an incident where it became known that white sororities were not allowing black students into the sororities. And they were actually told by their alumni boards that if uh, that they would you know not receive funding that their houses because these are really grandiose big houses so there's a lot of money that comes into it from alumni so these emails became public and were um, actually discussed in the crimson white which is the local newspaper so sort of like your purdue exponent here and it became nationwide news so based on this occurrence about a year later there was a video posted discussing the racial issues that are still occurring at the University of Alabama. On that video is when this post occurred. So that video was about a year old, a year later, so exactly when um, about a year kind of all that dirt came out is when this post got made. So kind of blowing up the post a little bit, the post is by Arthur Pendragon, so Arthur Pendragon, and this is how it was actually spelled. So this goes back into um, a different style of spelling for Arthur Pendragon, but that's who they're referring to as the Camelot character. So ladies and gentlemen, the day of retribution is getting nearer and nearer. Do not be found wanting. I have seen minorities suffer at the hands of those who think they are superior. This is my first message, and I shall not say much. Take this the way you want, as a threat or whatever. All I know is that it will be a day when all that look at minorities with disgust shall remember. After this day, you shall appreciate every minority who walks on that campus. Friday the 20th of September was Miss Sorority Row. This was essentially a pageant that the sororities held to see who would be Miss Sorority Row. So after this, or Friday the 20th of September was Miss Sorority Row, my mercy kept all of you alive because it was not yet the day of my retribution. Do you know how it feels to have a tar 21 passing through your flesh? I'll be waiting all frat, or I'll be watching all frat parties and monitoring all your events. The day is near, be vigilant. So this post occurred sometime on Sunday. We don't know exactly what time because the original post was taken down by law enforcement and we couldn't get that confirmed. But what happened is screenshots. Thank goodness for screenshots, right? So the screenshots went viral. So after this post, um, again, it's unknown, but by 9.30 that night, an all-female dormitory called Tutwiler was shut down. And there was a call to law enforcement by a concerned parent that had received a phone call from their daughter saying that there were armed gunmen in the dorm. And this is uh, the Crimson White reporting on it. So again, that Purdue exponent, similar version. 15 minutes later, UAPD investigates death threats. So we went from concerned parent has armed gunmen to there are death threats now. And the students went crazy. At 12.06, so three hours later, UAPD sent an email giving an all clear, saying that they had investigated, that they had gone to every single room within that dormitory, they could not find any armed gunmen. This is the email that was sent. One thing I want you to note is how boring it is, bland, it's just a general email saying there was no concern. We did not have anything like the text message services that you guys have here at Purdue. 
At 3.36, so now you're on Monday morning, USA Today reports on the dorm lockdown and says that the cause was for social media concerns. This is the first time that we're seeing a link between that social media post on YouTube and the dorm lockdown. So USA Today discussed it, but law enforcement did not. And um, there's the article. So this is me going to work that morning. If you are a fan of Walking <laughs> Dead, you will recognize this. So what it was, it was, it was just dead. I had no idea. I usually get to the office around 8 or 9 a.m. And I actually drive through the main drag of campus. So that would kind of be your northwestern, you know, right there where the Memorial Mall is, is what we call it, the quad. There was no students, nobody walking around. I actually got a parking spot in front of the door to my building. So when I rolled up, I was like on a high, let me tell you. And then I'm trying to figure out, this is weird, like it is Monday, right? And it's not Sunday or I couldn't figure out what's going on. Got to my office, ran into another faculty member who just finished teaching his 9 a.m. or 8 a.m. class and said that no, nobody came. So we had no idea what was going on because that email went to students, didn't go to faculty. So we weren't really, oh yeah, this is, you guys, this is only Monday, right? So at 9.36 a.m., President addresses the lockdown in an email. And then by 10.30 a.m., a second Arthur Pendragon threat is made via email to a student at the university. So the, um, the Arthur Pendragon contacted Ian McDaniel and posted this threat. So chaos, ha-ha, when the day comes, it will be chaos. Lives will, be, will leave in an orderly fashion. They shall feed on the tears of the weeping parents. Thought that was really funny. Um, Bryce Lawn, so that's our memorial lawn. That's what we call it. Bryce Lawn has been a favorite of ours for some time now. Notice how the word favorite is spelled. It shall be a reminder that the day of retribution is close, that it is your only hint for now. We will contact university police and let them know that we are here and that you should be vigilant. So this is the threat. What we actually think happened is that um, possibly hackers hacked into the account and sent this type of email through the original author Pendragon. That's kind of what we're thinking right now. But that's not from law enforcement, that's just what my, my team thinks. All right, so we don't think that that is related to the first original post. At 11.20 a.m., the university finally mentions the YouTube threat. So this whole time we've had uh, sort of this separation between what happened on YouTube and the lockdown. So the students know about the YouTube post. They're all discussing it, they're all sharing it, they're wondering why law enforcement isn't talking about it. They don't think law enforcement knows about it. So they're all paranoid to go to campus. They think law enforcement is completely in the dark. So then, like I said, this email goes out discussing the alarming posts on YouTube, saying that UAPD is investigating who's involved, and they also mention that the FBI is being consulted. So that's the first time you hear about the FBI's involvement. By this time, other national news is reporting on it, Huffington Post, the New York Times, and the Washington Times. I think this story would have exploded more um, if there wasn't a missing girl from a campus in Virginia at the same time. So at the same time this was going on, I don't know if you guys remember that, but there was a missing student who was kidnapped, I believe it was Virginia, but don't quote me on that. And I think her body actually ended up in Alabama. Um, but that was a lot of nationwide news. So I feel like that took kind of the front covers and that's what everybody was focusing on, not on this threat. Um, 9 a.m. or 9 p.m., so what, 24 hours later, threatening text messages from a person claiming to be Arthur Pendragon are now circulating on social media. So again, seeing those screenshots, these were circulating through um, GroupMe text messages. And essentially, you know, if you live on the 12th floor and you are a new member of Alpha Phi, if you come outside with no one following and bring me a list of your EC, so your executive council members, your life will be spared on retribution day. 
The other one is saying, um, bring, bring your victims to the following address at this time. Your life will be spared. If this is done correctly, I cannot promise the safety of the others. So again, more rumors are exploding here. So Tuesday at 9.47, UA notifies students via email that the FBI is involved in the Pendragon investigation. They finally named who the person is, right, Pendragon, and a student was arrested for sending those prank text messages that you saw. At 5.08, university emails students that classes are not canceled, but you're not required to go. So those students who haven't been going because they're terrified are now not going, and then you have students who probably would go to class are not going as well. So Tuesday was really interesting because on Tuesday morning, I actually teach Tuesdays. So I didn't teach Monday, but I was preparing for what Tuesday was going to be like. I emailed my students, and I teach a cyber criminology course, which I'll plug right now. I'm teaching next semester if you want to talk to me later. So, um, but I teach a cyber criminology course where we go over the theory of cyber crime. On the Thursday prior to the post on Sunday, I actually gave an entire lecture on cyber terrorism, how you can use social media to cause chaos, and how to use proxy servers. <laughs> Smart, right? So, <laughs> so, so I, yeah, really, really, yeah, this is great. So I, you know, I'm sitting there, I mean, I, I think I didn't want to leave my house. I was waiting for the SWAT team to come in and drag me out saying, and I, you know, I ended up turning over the list of the students that were in my course, um, the members of my cybercrime club as well, because I knew that they all knew this information. I just discussed it. And if a few years ago, AP's Twitter account got hacked. I don't know if you guys remember that, where it said that the president had been injured and the White House was under attack. Yep. Does anyone remember what happened to the stock market? Yeah, it crashed, right? So that was kind of the discussion about how a simple post can cause this chaos, right, as far as a cyber threat goes. Well, um, good news, it wasn't one of my students, <laughs> but uh, I was pretty nervous. So I also work with law enforcement. So I was the uh, co-creator of a joint electronic crimes task force at the University of Alabama. So what that was is all the certified digital forensic examiners in our county got together. The university provided space. I provided student interns, and we processed evidence for free for anybody in our county and anybody outside. So um, up to date, I have talked to the commander, and they've already examined over 944 devices. So that's a lot. Yeah, so they're pretty busy. We're also about an hour from Hoover, which is where the National Computer Forensics Institute is, which is ran by the Secret Service. So we, we are working with law enforcement. We're working with the feds. Everybody's involved in this task force. So my students on Tuesday were kind of special because they thought if Dr. Kate emails us and says you must come to class, A, she would know if there's a real threat going on because she works with law enforcement. She co-commands the lab, right? And she would have inside information. So my students all came except for one student who was a student that um, was not from the state of Alabama. So that's good. We're going to play into that a little bit later. But I kind of want to give you that background. So I had a unique group of students who came. Apparently no other, the other faculty did. The students also verbally told me that if I would have canceled class, that would have sent a panic through them because then I would have had inside information. So I was in the Department of Criminal Justice at Alabama, which meant that the other faculty who were teaching law enforcement courses, one of them was teaching terrorism, they canceled their classes because they didn't want to teach to a class of five people. So those students were in a panic. They all thought that the terrorism professor and the professor teaching law enforcement knew something. So again, kind of think about the environment. I know we don't really have that traditional criminal justice program here, but it really did kind of play a role as far as um, our program was concerned. So students started skipping class, of course. And this is after, I forgot to mention, I had emailed, or we had received an email from our dean saying class will not be canceled, 
there is no safety concerns, you know, we're investigating this, everybody's to come to class. About a few hours later, that's when the provost emailed the students telling them they don't have to go to class. So again, miscommunication between the administration. So reminder, university dorm lockdown. Now I'm going to talk about some of the social media aftermath. It was crazy. We have posts on Reddit. We have several Reddit forums that were going on with some vigilantes that were trying to um, essentially gather evidence and they're turning it over to law enforcement. I was constantly getting uh, phone calls from anonymous little hackers within my cybercrime club that were trying to help out and they were trying to get me to pass the information to law enforcement. It went crazy. So here's some of the pictures that were going around. So the first two photos are from the Crimson White. So that again, that was that student newspaper. They took photos of the dorm lockdown. You can imagine how powerful that is when you see law enforcement standing outside of a lockdown dorm. We also have photos going around where students barricading themselves inside their dorm. And then the other ones, they're hiding in the bathrooms holding hands. So again, imagine that you're a student, you're in a different dorm, and you're seeing these types of pictures circulating on social media, and your friends are sending them saying that this is what's happening. There's gunmen, there's a death threat. Did you see the post on YouTube? And in Alabama, I mean, racial issues is a serious problem still, and so just imagine that environment as well. By 11.30, hashtag pray for Bama starts trending. Yes, on Twitter. So uh, there's a whole forum on hashtag pray for Bama, sending lots of love and prayers. About five minutes later, after that starts uh, trending, a Texas A&M student tweets back. That is 628 miles away. So again, now everybody in the South knows about it. We actually had newspapers in Louisiana reporting on the threats going on in Alabama. So this was a problem even for other universities that were in the area. Um, on reddit.com, that's when we first saw that vigilanteism that I was kind of talking about. This is the R capstone, so capstone is another word for the university that we use in Alabama. A new threat has come up with an unhappy smiley face, and they're starting to talk about who did this, and they're all posting names. So in my um, book or chapter or in this conference paper, I did not actually list specifically the link to this. I'm sure you could still find it, but it's because they listed people's names addresses, possible suspects. Hey, we broke into this person's Facebook page. Did you see all the guns that they collect? Did you see all these previous organizations they're members of? All of this is on there. So you can imagine the privacy concerns that are going on as well. But these students really did, for the most part, think they were trying to help, right? Um, rumors are going crazy. So one of these screenshots that I have, the police just came to my door, told me that the four men dressed as the Joker were arrested and their guns, um, with their guns, but the, afterwards the police received an anonymous phone call saying, you took the bait as usual and the Jokers are the only people out there who are going to get revenge this time, etc." So now you have, and then you have WTF, people are, you know, instant messaging or messaging back. So imagine your student, your friend sends this message to you, says that they got it from their friend and it's a screenshot. You're probably going to believe it, right? Why would your friend start sending these kind of lies, especially when you know people are really scared? So these were the rumors. Student chokings, that was a big one. Uh, machetes, there was several that machetes had been stabbed into the fraternity doors with notes saying you're all going to die things like that. Shots fired on campus, jokers and clowns. I don't know about you, but I'm terrified of clowns. So I think it's <laughs> hilarious that that's who you would imagine running around campus rampant. Um, bomb threats as well. You can probably see that as being pretty common. Fire alarms going off. So this is also ironic. This same time we had a brand new dormitory go up, which is where a lot of the younger students were living. This dormitory had problems like most buildings. What happened? Random fire alarms would go off. 
So the residential halls kept thinking that when those fire alarms are going off, it's related to Arthur Pendragon. So there's all these coincidences that were happening. And later they kept telling them, no, 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 it's just a brand new building, this is happening all the time. And I think they would have believed that if this post had not occurred. So we're still on Monday, right? All this chaos. We've already got chokings and all these things going on. So by 5:10, an email to the students addressing the rumors occurs. They're saying that the FBI is on campus, but they're not um, conducting investigations in these halls. No one is dressed as a Joker and Tutwiler. No one has been seen wearing a box in a suspicious manner. I mean, all these kinds of things. But the uh, police felt that it was necessary to actually list these threats out. I'm going to stop there because otherwise I'm going to keep going. I have my paper has a week's worth of stuff that happened. So this is just Monday and Tuesday, the chaos that went on. So remember Tuesdays when um, administration said you don't have to go to class, but you're recommended to go to class. We were told essentially as faculty that they could not, students could not be penalized, and um, school would you would still have your courses and everything. The students were required to make up whatever they missed, but um, for the most part, a lot of faculty just canceled because they didn't feel the need to to keep teaching when no one was there. So getting into the analysis of the event. So what we're going to look at is a qualitative type of analysis. Essentially what that means is that I'm not going to be running any specific statistical analyses. This isn't empirical data. When this type of research happens, we call it a historical event. So a historical event meaning something I couldn't plan. So we see this type of research as well when you talk about um, you know, natural disasters, tsunamis, hurricanes. What do you do? Well, you can't give a survey. How do you feel now? Well, you know, that's elevated fear. They're not going to quite understand. I could have collected data beforehand, but who's going to put an IRB form in and then wait 20 years for a cyber threat to occur like this? So this is when you have the only type of really great data that you can analyze is kind of qualitative data. So one of the types of case studies you can analyze or look at is called explanatory, exactly what it sounds like. Trying to explain the way that people responded during that event. One of the problems with this is hindsight bias, and we realize that, so you have to take your time with the data and let the data tell the story. Um, and then we analyze all the different theories that are available to us to see if one made sense. And we think we found one, but you know, it's, again, it's up for discussion. Author Pendragon case is currently inactive, so it's, it is not closed. It's just not currently being investigated. I can tell you that um, we know who did it, but that's as far as it's going to go. So it's quite interesting, um, you know, this, this type of threat, and, and the students don't, you know, they're never going to get closure from this, I don't think. But, um, but that just creates more complications because of jurisdictions and all that kind of stuff. But it provides a unique opportunity to analyze this type of community setting. So discussion, uh, difference between mass panic and mass fear. So traditional belief is that when you respond to a threat of terrorism or natural disaster, you're going to have mass panic. That's when you see these images of people running down the streets screaming. Think of those Godzilla movies, you know, those terrible sci-fi movies. This is what you're imagining happening. Um, very rarely, if you look at the literature, has this ever happened. It tr tends to happen when people feel trapped. So there's a famous case where a um, night studio, like a dance studio, caught on fire and stu people were trying to escape and the doors were the old style doors where they opened in and not out, which is now why you have fire doors and doors are required to open out, now you know. Um, so when people were trying to flee, they all burned because they were keeping the door closed and people died from being stampeded, all that kind of stuff. So yes, it does happen, but not, it's not very common. And it's in fact very rare if you look at the literature. So what we do see instead is um, mass flight or not mass flight, sorry, fear and sociotropic fear. So this idea that um, 
fear for your community, that's the sociotropic, and fear for yourself. You'll see that mass fear, but you're not going to see that arms flailing in the air, mass panic, trying to escape a scenario. So with the author Pendragon threat, we did, did not see that mass panic, but we did see that fear and sociotropic fear. So there was a lot of fear for the Greek students. The Greek students were terrified. Um, a lot of them would not leave their houses. There, it, I had a couple students that were African American that told me that students avoided them on campus, that it was very obvious that they were afraid to walk close to other students that were not white. So there, you, there was all these kind of social things that were occurring at the same time. And again, all this is anecdotal evidence. So the theory that we decided to pull that we thought had the most um, kind of validity in its explaining this type of behavior was Mawson's 2005 social attachment model. So she basically says that mass panic implies uncontrollable flight. Affiliation implies moving towards the familiar. So affiliation is the family members and people around you, your friends, people that you know. And affiliation is something that's incredibly important in a time of fear. So you want to be around and people and places that you're comfortable. And I think that that's what we saw at Alabama. We did not see that mass panic, but we did see this kind of fleeing towards places that you were familiar with. Separation of an attachment figure is more stressful than the danger itself. So it's, you're more scared when you're alone than if you're with somebody, or at least in a place that you're comfortable, according to her theory. So we're going to kind of break it down. It's kind of hard for you guys to see, but there's four reactions to threats and disasters. And it depends on the social support available and the degree of physical danger. So whether or not you saw the danger as immediate and uh, physical, that's going to cause the highest anxiety, that high fear. Or if kind of in the cyber threat, it's mild. You don't actually think something physically is going to happen to you. Whereas if you're in a fire situation and you see the flames going around you, that's going to cause that immediate fear. You know that that physical danger is there. The other one is, again, the location of your attachment figures. So whether they're present or whether they're absent. So when they're present and the anxiety is mild, you have that affiliation. So again, that increased desire to be close to somebody. However, if your attachment figure is absent, you have orderly evacuation. So that'll be the case where it's, we call it flight and affiliation. You might leave the room or leave the situation, but you're going to go towards a place where you feel safe. We saw this with our um, students that were freshmen and also the students that were out of state. So we saw that tendency. We had a lot of, um, and again, anecdotal evidence from talking to other faculty members. The students that left on Monday and Tuesday were usually the students that were out of state. Their parents paid for them to fly home. So again, seeking that affiliation. If you think about it, out-of-state students may not have a lot of friends in state. Freshmen are not going to have those affiliations yet. They're not going to know a lot of people. We also saw that the students who did know people went to their places. So they left their dorms and stayed with friends who lived off campus or they went and stayed with their friend in another dorm. Like maybe you don't like your roommate, so you're going to go stay with your good friend. So we did see kind of this affiliation happening with people that, um, again, were in-state and out-of-state. So we decided, based on all this kind of anecdotal evidence, that class attendance dropped after initial threat, reports of out-of-state students traveling home. A lot of students did that. On-campus residents moved in with their off-campus residents. These were all situations that faculty were hearing about. So what did the author Pendragon result in? Well, we saw increased attachment for those students with a strong local support system. So the students that had friends in state or on the, in the community, those students who lacked support left home or left for home. And again, we saw that kind of freshman out-of-state students. I did teach one freshman class, and it was um, like a seminar of five students just trying to get them interested in cybercrime and cybercriminology. 
And um, I, it was on Tuesday as well, and I made them come. I threatened them and told them they had to be there. So, and this is also before the email went out from the provost. So all the students came except for one or two of them, and the one who was the most upset was the out-of-state student. And she uh, was luckily within driving distance. She was from Mississippi, so she could have driven home if she wanted to, or you know, her family could have came and got her. But um, you know, she was telling me stories about how her friends had barricaded themselves in, and you know, another roommate was you know locked themselves in the closet. Now, whether or not these are exaggerated stories, or she was hearing this from somebody from somebody, these are the things that students were saying, right? This is the information that was getting spread. So the other theory we looked at was theory of proximity. So research shows that proximity plays an important role in the way that people perceive risk and dread and communicate during crises. So people who are farther from a threat believe the likelihood of the harm to be greater. This is really ironic. So that's why we have research, right? To kind of, this doesn't necessarily make sense intuitively. The farther you are from that danger, the more likely you are to think that danger is occurring. So you can imagine the parent, right, was the one who called to say this threat's happening, I'm terrified for my students. A lot of the parents, I actually got an email from a parent saying I don't want my kid to go to class. So the parents who weren't even on campus that were out of state or away were the one, were really freaking out and terrified. And so I think that also fed into some of the fear for the students as well. So parents of out of state students were maybe, or we think more likely to label this as a cyber threat and more, or more likely to label this as real. Yeah. Same scenes like over and over and over again back on CNN. Mm -hmm. You would think Kuwait City was totally leveled, but when you were actually there, it wasn't so much. There was a few spots that were damaged. Right. Were you able to correlate the perception parents had from out of state with how often they were e either able to initiate a review of the news story mm -hmm. or it came over the air with their perception of how bad it was? No, so these were all. We had a whole bunch of ideas after the afterwards, right? Like, oh, we could we could send out. We're going to get an IRB protocol, and we thought about analyzing students' behavior, saying, "Hey, what did you do when that threat happened? Where did you go home? Did you not go home?" Well, first of all, then we thought no one's going to be honest about that. They're not going to tell us that they were scared out of their minds, you know, and crying in a closet. No one's going to tell us that. And then we were also concerned that we're missing an entire group of people who graduated, so we're missing that group of seniors. And so then, you know, this is where it's like, man, we missed out. Like, we could have gotten data, but yet we didn't. So that was another thing, you know, asking parents, well, then how do you get a hold of parents? You know, how would we get that information? Would students want us to talk to their parents? Probably, I don't know. Yeah. So this, again, is one of the problems with qualitative data. Yeah. But there's a lot of cool research questions that might be answered. But again, you might be missing that data. Like I said, the seniors that graduated. The last thing that we looked at was rumor mongering. So how do we stop these rumors from happening? You know, the joker rumors, the rumors of people being choked on campus. Um, the research shows that terror situations provide a fertile ground for rumors if individuals do not perceive the facts that they desire. So it all has to come to trust. If the person receiving the information trusts, then they're going to be fine. If they don't trust, then fear and doubt, that's what the sign says, is just the head. So that is exactly what happened here. The students did not get the information that they wanted as quickly as they wanted it, right? Nobody talked about the author Pendragon threat. Nobody talked about a threat on YouTube. They only talked about the lockdown. So again, they thought law enforcement was in the dark. They thought the university was in the dark. They, or they thought they weren't taking it serious enough, because the students clearly were. They were very worried about this. So when this happens, people are more likely to rely on other sources of information, and they're more likely to believe rumors. 
The other thing that we know is that rumors are more likely to be believed when they're attractive. And a lot of times attractive means they contain some sort of visual picture or an image. So screenshots, right? Screenshot is, is just words. But that is so much more powerful than somebody actually typing that up saying that they heard this in the hallway. Oh no, look what somebody sent me. Or somebody sent me from somebody else. And it's sent by a credible source. So you're more likely to believe your friend or roommate who says this happened or says that they heard this from a friend of a friend. And again, coming down to those pictures on, um, of them barricading themselves in and that other post saying that they saw jokers come to the, the door and the police you know, arrested them, but they had been tricked. So what were our practical recommendations? And I warned. Everybody, I don't know if you heard me, but whenever I use a Mac and go to a PC, my numbers become ones. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know why this happens. But uh, so the pra practical recommendations. The first one, administration and law enforcement clearly need to communicate to the public using the same channels. They were sending emails. That is how they were communicating. You guys don't even read emails. We as faculty know that. We don't send you emails. So why would you, when you're talking about a threat and trying to get the students, send an email to them? Uh, and, and then, you know, they were not, our university is also unique, or the police department is, they do not have any social media presence. So they are terrified. There was a local county that had a social media uh, Facebook page and ended up posting homicide photos on it on accident. I'm not really sure how that happened. Yeah, so, or <laughs> exactly. So because somebody else ruins it for everybody, right? And so they're now terrified. The chief of police refuses to have social media presence. They have no Twitter accounts. They have no Facebook page, nothing. So when they were communicating information, they were telling it through these boring emails that students don't read. The other thing too is that they need to build trust. How do you build trust? You communicate information quickly. Now, I work with law enforcement and I was actually a jail officer going through school. So I understand how important it is to keep tips, keep information from the public while you're doing an investigation. However, some information should be acknowledged, like the fact that you know there's a cyber threat. The University of Alabama should have stated, we are aware of the cyber threat and we are investigating it, rather than not mentioning it for 12 hours later, or however long it was. Um, basically the next day. I mean, when the USA Today talks about it prior to the university acknowledging it, that's a problem. The other thing too is that universities should start considering developing protocols for how do you communicate to the public. So how do you communicate to parents? How do you communicate to the students? And don't forget about the faculty. How do you communicate to us? We were sending emails to our students telling them you must come to class when later an email is coming out from the provost saying you don't have to come to class. It just needs to show consistency because to the students it shows chaos. Like we don't know what we're doing. Nobody's talking. And that's really scary. So again, and those faculty members who canceled class, I honestly think that facilitated some of the fear. I have heard from students on a numerous uh, number of times when they, you know, they said, I was scared because the faculty member canceled class, she must know something, or he must know something, especially in a Department of Criminal Justice. So you can imagine if you know, serious faculty all start canceling classes after a cyber threat, you're not gonna go to class, even if your psychology professor comes, because your serious faculty must know something, right? Or your computer science faculty. So there, there is that kind of fear associated with it. And again, monitor social media. This is also something that the university is starting to do, and most universities are doing already. If, if not, they will be in the future. So they're starting to do data mining, monitoring what's being said on uh, Yik Yak, monitoring what's being said on social media, you know, looking for those keywords like bomb threat, um, shootings, guns, 
uh, revenge, all those kind of keywords that are getting posted, they're searching through them. Law enforcement should have been doing that, although I, we, I know they were very busy, but it would have been great to quickly debunk rumors immediately rather than allowing the students to continue with this type of information and discourage rumor mongering. They never gave any information about the legal consequences. So on Monday morning or Sunday night, they should have said, you know, rumor mongering will not be tolerated. You will be arrested and charged with, um, you know, facilitating fear or whatever, um, or a cyber threat. We did have two students who were arrested with that and the charges were later dropped. So again, when, and this very much are upset law enforcement because they had to get search warrants, they had to go through this entire process. And not that they were going to use these students as an example, but it, didn't, it then showed other students that, hey, it doesn't, you know, you can do this. Yeah, you're going to get in trouble. The students were suspended for a while, but then the charges ended up getting dropped. So this is from uh, another research article that mass media has been referred to as the oxygen of terrorism. So our argument is that social media is this uncontrollable catalyst. And if you're not monitoring it, it's gonna cause a problem. So pre-planning is gonna be necessary and communication is required if you're gonna squash those rumors and minimize that mass anxiety that we saw. So again, we didn't see mass panic because that's rare, but we did see mass anxiety within the university. If you wanna read my paper, I'm more than happy to share it with you. There is a week's worth of things that happened in the news discussing uh, more threats that were going on. I also kind of, this isn't in the paper so much, but would like to mention too that there was an economic factor as well, so a financial loss to the community. On um, that Friday, I'm just going to say that I'm aware of it, that there was a beer festival, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I'm just going to say that maybe I knew that it was always really packed every year, and this year when my husband maybe and I went, uh, oh. there was nobody there. I mean, nobody was there at this festival. And this was an in-community, the students, faculty, everybody came out, supported the local brew scene. And I mean, it was great for us, there was no lines. It was more, <laughs> more than enough to maybe share if I was there. But uh, it's just this idea that, so we did see that. We did see that it was just dead. I mean, it was like spring break on a weekend. And this is a major football community. It was weird. You can tell that people were gone. So I don't have the numbers to back that up. I can't go, I guess I could go and ask the organizations or businesses to tell me how much money they lost on that day. But all I can say is that this is what I experienced, several of the faculty experienced, so we think that these anecdotes are at least given us enough information to maybe move forward with creating protocols and really um, better understanding this type of behavior within the university setting. So yeah, if you guys have questions, then I'll have you open it up. Yeah. Oh, I'm just going to mention, we, um, I was overseas and the social media thing was happening and, you know, basically nature abhors a vacuum. Mm -hmm. And in the same way I've had to learn how to cope with texting with my children because they don't answer the voicemail on their phones, um, yeah. institutions are catching up with social media. Yep. And the court of public opinion is going to judge you if you're an institution, whether it's a government or a corporation, if you're not aware of that. So in the old days, not so long ago, maybe two or three years ago, an institution could hold off and say, let's make sure we have our information that's perfect before we tell anyone anything. Right. But never mind, the nature pours a vacuum. The social media court of opinion has already decided what your fate's gonna be. Yeah. And trying to dig yourself out of it is very, very hard. So mm -hmm. now you have to really stay on top of it and say, this is what we know now. And more will be forthcoming versus mm -hmm. saying nothing at all. Mm-hmm, yeah. So I would love to hear what you guys think, um, students, how they would respond here, 
couple things that I've looked at. Twitter, for the police handle here, has um, I think only a thousand or two thousand followers, so not a lot. So even if they were going to communicate through that forum, it may not be as beneficial. Although again, you could screenshot. Maybe that'll get spread around uh, much more quickly. The, although the Purdue Exponent has, I believe we were looking at it, it was um, 20,000 mm -hmm. followers. But again, we don't know if those current students, past students, who those people are, but uh, you know, much more of a prevalence there on Twitter. So That's what I was going to somewhat comment on. So when something happens here, we get both text messages and emails. Yes. But depending on where you are in that list, you may, my husband and I both would get them, and he would get a text message five minutes before I would because he and vice versa, depending on the event and, and where we were in the distribution process. Yeah. And so what we found out was that it's much faster if we follow on Twitter the exponent or life at Purdue. Yes, because life at the Purdue is the only one I looked at. Right. Any, any comments that are made by the police or by the administration are up there and are typically up there much more quickly than what we are receiving the messages and the emails. Yeah. So I think I... Um I want to say that I get the text messages as well, and it was something where maybe 15 minutes later between when I read it on Facebook, and I shouldn't uh, say I get all my news on Facebook. I am that person. I found out Michael Jackson died on Facebook, um, Robin Williams, Facebook, uh, like all these things. That's when I find out my news. So I think you guys had a shooting here last year. I found out through a student on Facebook. So she saw it on Facebook, knew I was a, I did my PhD here years ago. Um, not that long ago. I don't want you guys to think I'm that old. But uh, it was a few years ago. So I did my PhD here, so I returned home. And she came running in my office. And then I pulled up Facebook, and I was following all my friends who were you know, taking screenshots of what was happening outside. A lot of them were in EE or in um, the building next to it, Emmy. Thank you. And they were taking pictures outside of the, the windows in their classroom. So anyway, that's how I was getting my information. I did not check Purdue's Facebook page. I did not. You know, that's, yeah, I was following what all my friends were posting. So even I do that. I was trusting what they were saying was happening over, you know, what the media was saying. Yeah. There are bigger problems with all of the uh, text message systems, because, just in general, because they can't seem to deliver a coherent message. Okay. Even, I mean, so just, what, Monday or something, there was, you know, building filled with smoke and they sent out a text message oh, and yeah. then they said oh it's cleared at 21 something or other p.m. it's like i don't know what's up with the uis they're using but something's just wrong so some, so sometimes the information doesn't appear to be consistent it, somebody's or, not i mean it's yeah. they're not even reading what they're t sending my undergraduate university has one of these they at one point send out a text message that said well the tornado warning expires at 8 a.m. or p.m. Right. Oh, that's very useful. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Appreciate it. Well, and I think that the like Purdue in general is is quite an interesting university because you guys usually rank within the first or second as the largest public university for international students. So if you want to talk about a, an affiliation problem, this is where it would be. And so that was also part of the reason why I decided to pick this as the topic because I feel like or at least in my opinion, maybe you guys don't feel that way. I, I could see there being a lot of problems if a threat like this happened based on this theory. So maybe Mawson would fail here. I don't know. But based on what Mawson would predict, you would see a lot of students fleeing or at least leaving campus or, um, you know, if you had family members outside of Indiana, that would be what you, your goal because of that lack of affiliation. I don't know. Maybe you guys disagree. That's just what the theory would predict. So it could be more, even more chaotic, is what I'm saying here, than what it was in Alabama. Yeah. Would Mawson's theory cover um, 
like cyber movements and not just physical movements because um, oh the reason why I asked that is because I have noticed amongst my friends and the people I know that whenever there's any kind of threat they go to a certain space online maybe like mm -hmm. for the shooting there was oh, yeah. a subreddit that a lot of people were going to yeah. they were um, listening to the police scanner and reporting that as like real time they were posting what they heard on there mm -hmm. so that the reliability of that information was interesting, but also when there's a severe um, storm, mm -hmm. uh, WLFI, the news channel, yes. puts up a chat window mm -hmm. um, where people can share what's going on with them and where the storm is there. So I was wondering if um, if uh, Moss and Siri could be extended to cover like people going online to a space that they know is credible, going online to a space where they think they know the people as mm -hmm. well and not just the physical flight or if that would be too much of a extension. No, so uh, first I should say Mawson is in 2005, right? So it's mainly dealing with uh, traditional you know, terrorism and also uh, natural disasters. So how it applies to the cyber world is interesting. Um, what I would say is no, I wouldn't apply her theory, but I would apply the theories that discussed rumor mongering. So that idea that when there's a lack of trust, that's when you go seeking your sources of information, your friends, you know, sites that you're more familiar with, and you sort of take charge. Okay, yeah. thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, since, since in Bordeaux there is a large international population, could not the theory also be the mess? couldn't be lesser too because as international students, I don't know, maybe we are not that prone. We haven't seen terrorism mm -hmm. attacks, so we maybe discard the messages faster than than domestic people that are afraid, more afraid than maybe international. I don't know. I'm just yeah, no, I, I mean, so as far as the literature goes, I, I don't know if that's really been looked at. But it's not so much whether or not you're going to discard whether or not it's it, especially the cyber threat, right? Whether or not you discard that that's actually going to happen. It's more of the amount of anxiety. So with a cyber threat, you're going to have low anxiety compared to you know mass mass fear because you don't see the perceived danger there. Again, like a um, tornado. I don't know if you guys have ever been in a tornado. Those are scary. So uh, that's a very different physical type danger than what you're experiencing with a cyber threat. Yeah. Maybe the, the, the commotion. Mm -hmm. Maybe, I don't know. Because international students cannot easily flee somewhere or, or go home. Right. So we would tend to stay. So I think, so I think in theory, I think um, international students would stay, but that, uh, international students would congregate together. So maybe you would go to, like, uh, for instance, the Black Cultural Center. I could see students moving into that center. Um, if there's um, another center on campus that's similar to that, student, international students might move to that one that they're familiar with. That's where the, some of that affiliation is going to start occurring. If there are cases where um, you have family maybe in New York City or, you know, outside, you might go home then. You might fly home because of that. I would, I would predict that freshmen and international students would be more likely to flee. Maybe not all, but that's compared to students who live here in West Lafayette or in Indiana, that's what I would expect. So as faculty members, like I said, if, this, you know, if there's a way to test this, it would be great because then the protocol would say, as a faculty member, we should be aware that our freshman students are gonna be vulnerable to these types of threats. Our international students might be more vulnerable to these types of threats. So when we get an email from a student we should not disregard it and say, oh, they're just trying to get out of class, but we should say, you know, statistically, this person, because of some of these theories, might be more scared than somebody else in class. Yeah. So this sounds terrible, because, but 
I'm wondering if American students are more drama inclined than students from overseas. <laughs> I mean, truly. I mean, I, yeah. I, I watch some of the things that I, no. I'm just projecting now, but I, I watch my, the, the, the things my kids have gotten all wound up about, and I look at international students and I go, you know, they're probably just chuckling at us. You know? <laughs> but they have to tell you that answer. I, I can't speak for them. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? And again, we can make generalizations, right? So. Yeah, go for it. Uh, I mean, in my experience, I mean, I'm an international student, and I've seen that American students be far more scared. I mean, I work in my Oh, microphone. Uh, check that. I freaked out for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> so your whole, your whole premise is off, I'm right? So next student, right? <laughs> no, but, uh, but yeah, I think it's, uh, it's really cultural related mm -hmm. to Americans tend to be more scared, being threatened all the time, you know, like, oh, why do people hate on us or, or stuff like that? Yeah. So it's, like, I honestly, like, I receive all the text messages and I don't care at all. Like, one day I was walking in school at night and I received a text that someone was stopped at 3 a.m. And I still, like, I wasn't different to that. Right. Because, right. Uh, and also the, from the backgrounds that we come, like, sometimes we Either come from... Cities. Yeah, yeah, dangerous cities. So, um, so one thing is, you know, the difference between getting a, a post that somebody's been stabbed on campus or was just mugged. Again, that's not going to have that immediate danger to it versus tornadoes on campus. Normally, when you hear a tornado is going to be coming, you know, sirens are going off. Those, those are kind of scary, right? The danger is much more immediate. You can hear the noises. Everybody's preparing for it versus just message saying avoid this corner of the street because somebody just got mugged. So again, it comes down to how much fear is there, what's the level of anxiety, and then you can look at how somebody's going to respond to the situation. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Something that is just peculiar about your story, because when you look at it, the, pe the people there were not responding, the people in the administration, mm -hmm. and then later on they said he, they knew who it was and he was not charged or whatever. Well, no, they don't know that. I'm just letting you guys know that. Nobody else knows that. This is a secret. Well, that's now being aired. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, so no, nobody knows that. I know, this is great. Some kind of special project some people were doing to see how panic is going to develop in the society or because the way that you are saying, maybe from the information that you were saying, because they say maybe everybody knew what was going on, but the other people outside, they didn't know, and that's why they were not playing to those kind of threats. They say everything is okay, and... And as I said, I'm looking at it at a different angle. Maybe there was mm -hmm. some kind of a project, they were doing something, but it cut out of hand or something. Yeah, well, there wasn't. I can let you know that. There wasn't, this wasn't some sort of science experiment <laughs> project that was going on. But it would have been great data. Um, <laughs> but I, I would love to co-author who, with whoever that was. So give me a call. But um, yeah, no, so that was not the case. This was definitely a situation where this threat happened, law enforcement, nobody acknowledged it, and that caused a week's worth of chaos for the student body and for the faculty who are dealing with, um, you know, missing class and trying to figure out how we're going to cover an entire week. They're yeah. not going to volunteer to tell you what they did because they're going to be lawsuits. So just be, be saying nothing, nothing was like that, as I said, basically, because if somebody claimed that it was something which was going on, then mm -hmm. there would be lots of lawsuits against the university and everybody mm -hmm. else. So. I don't expect somebody coming out to say, yo, oh, yeah, we did this, and this didn't work out the way we mm -hmm. wanted to. But yeah. That's just one way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I was just wondering, I mean, how, the way you put it, like, what, how would our reaction be if something like this came up in Purdue? Mm -hmm. I, I'd say that there has some, I mean, it's, 
I, I don't know how the environment back in Alabama would it be, but it also depends on the environment that you've been familiarized with because oh, here if you've faced some issues with uh, race or mm -hmm. uh, community, perhaps you, I mean, if something like this pops up tomorrow, I might just say, okay, another piece of news and walk into class mm -hmm. because I haven't faced that over here. So I'm, I might really not give it any weightage any more than a cat video. Right. So, I mean, when you see people barricading themselves and locking down and holding hands, that's, it's not like ISIS is here. That's what I would, Right. That, I mean, I wouldn't really feel that way because perhaps it has something to do with the environment that you've already been familiarized mm -hmm. with, the level of your fear or anxiety or your response to yeah. something There's like this. There's a lot side. of racial tension still in, that, in Alabama, so when any time you know, when you have a post that says they're targeting, especially Greek students, there's a lot of hate towards Greek students, especially in the news. Um, we're always in the news um, <laughs> about the, the white sororities, not only black students. And uh, we just had another one about the white sororities video. If you haven't seen the recruiting video for some of the, um, the University of Alabama sororities, that became national news and was discussed on the Today Show. So we're always in the news for having these types of issues. Um, so if there was an issue similar here at Purdue that maybe kind of hit at that vulnerability, then yeah, that might be something that causes um, some panic among students or some anxiety. Yeah. So I don't know. Anyway, either way, um, I thought this was really cool. I was excited and lucky to be there so I could like collect data and watch all of this happen. But again, I wasn't scared because I had connections with law enforcement. So now if I didn't have those connections, would I have been scared to go to work? Maybe, you know, maybe my perspective would have been totally different. But I have the lieutenant on speed down, he's my best friend. So it's not, you know, I can call him and say, hey, can I go to work? Yeah, don't worry about it. All right, well, I'm going to work. You know, they were investigating, it was a very serious threat. Um, a lot of man hours went into this. They slept at their offices. They pulled in law enforcement from all over the state of Alabama, plus the feds. I mean, this was a very serious case. And just because it hasn't been closed doesn't mean that they don't know who did it, or they don't, they think they know who did it. They just can't do, they're just, they're stuck right now. There's some tape, lots of tape. So that's what's happening. But for students, they keep wondering. So you can watch Yik Yak. Every once in a while, somebody will post, anybody heard about AP is what they call them. Arthur Pendragons, anybody heard about APs? Anyone knows what's going on? So it's still being discussed even a year later. They wanna know what happened, so. Well, I'll stay after for a few minutes if you guys uh, want to ask more questions. I'm teaching my cybercrim course next semester. It's 400 level, and I believe master students can take it if I'm hearing this correctly. So essentially, it's a theory of cybercrime. Who are these people? What, um, how can we predict who's at risk to engage in this type of behavior? I will clearly teach you about cyber terrorism and proxy servers. You want to learn more about that? <laughs> so, <laughs> but otherwise, um, you know, please come by and see me at any time. So it's a pleasure. Thank you, guys.